This program is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. Download their free mobile app and use the promo code BEST during activation for a chance to win $100. And welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Colbert Report, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Simpsons, The Progressive, Slate Magazine, Jim Hightower, Comedian Lee Camp, The Young Turks, The David Pakman Show, The Onion Radio News, and On the Media with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Young Turks. tell you the world is a very scary place that's why some nights i like to report happy news which brings me to the second installment of my long-running 100 percent televised series tiny triumphs Tonight's heartwarming news comes from the heart-stopping world of capital punishment. Recently, the state of California was all set to carry out its first execution in five years when they discovered their supply of the lethal drug sodium theopentol had expired on October 1st. <laughs> Evidently, the bottle had passed its kill-by date. <laughs> Things only got worse when they found out there was a nationwide shortage of sodium theopentol. I assume China bought it all to put in our toothpaste. <laughs> After frantically looking through their cupboards and couch cushions and coming up empty, California had to look elsewhere. California prison officials tried for two months to find the rare lethal drug they needed to carry out the state's first execution in five years. New documents show officials scoured the globe from Pakistan to London for the drug. Making it the first tour of Europe and Asia looking for drugs that did not find any. Now, as it turns out, England did have sodium theopentol, but the shipment was stopped at the border for inspection by the Food and Drug Administration, which is understandable. There are lives at stake here. If there's something wrong with that drug, somebody could not die. Luckily, just when it seemed like this story of state-sponsored execution wouldn't have a happy ending, California got help from right next door. Arizona agreed to lend California a cup of death. Nation, it's these kind of stories of neighbors helping neighbors that really fill your heart with joy. Or if you're on death row, 12 grams of sodium theopentol. And don't think that act of charity went unappreciated. California Department of Corrections Undersecretary Scott Kernan went out of his way to send a thank you email writing, and I quote, you guys in Arizona are lifesavers. So bravo, Arizona. You've proven that through teamwork, we can build a bridge together to the 21st century and then hang someone from it. We are stepping away from that news story for a second because of something confrontational and eye-opening that an American politician has just done. 
um, on an issue about which everyone says progress is not possible, on an issue about which politics are stopped up like a clogged artery by special interest groups who most Americans disagree with on this issue, but who nevertheless dominate the political process, on an issue where the president seems so far reluctant to say or do anything, even when the country plainly needs someone to show political leadership on this issue. It turns out it is the mayor of New York City, the mayor of New York City, who is refusing to back down on his advocacy on the issue of guns. New York City has sent investigators to a Phoenix, Arizona gun show. They sent those investigators two weeks after the Tucson massacre to document the locally tolerated market for illegal gun sales and for gun sales that are technically legal but are astounding nonetheless. And they got it all on videotape and it is amazing. Please watch this. You said on this price, man? Like 25. Out the door, no tax, no nothing. No tax? I'm not a dealer, so you have to worry about taxes or anything. Oh, that's good. So, so you're not one of those, you know, dealer guys, right? No, no tax, no form. You have to do transfer. You know, just yeah, see yeah. an Arizona ID, and that's it. With me. Yeah. So no background check? No. That's good, because I probably couldn't pass it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I like this, man. You take five for it? Cash. Right now. Alright, you have your ID with you? You can see your ID. You need my ID? I thought I you don't do background. I need to see it, that's all. Oh, you just need to see it? Yeah, I yeah, show yeah. you mine. We're private selling. We'll show you mine. That's yours, and that's it. Oh, okay. That's how you do it. Okay, do it. Yeah, I don't have to do it for me. This is the food Arizona residence. is all I need. Alright, how's that? That's me. That's Arizona, right? That's what happened when New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg sent a team of undercover investigators to a gun show in Phoenix called a Crossroads of the West. That took place 15 days after the Tucson gun massacre. And yes, that private seller may have checked the undercover investigator's ID for residency. And yes, he was not required to do a background check. But because the buyer told him he probably couldn't pass a background check because he gave the seller reasonable cause to believe that he fell into a prohibited category, that maybe he was under indictment, or maybe he was a convict, or maybe he was a fugitive from justice, or maybe he was an unlawful user of drugs, or someone who is addicted to any controlled substance. Because the would-be buyer gave the seller cause to believe, overt cause to believe, there was something in his background that would keep him from passing a background check. That gun sale was illegal. Did they look scared like they were going to get caught? Yeah, it wasn't an isolated incident either. Another seller at that same gun show perfectly willing to accept $450 cash, even after the investigator told him that he too probably couldn't pass a background check. Mayor Bloomberg's investigators also revealed how easy and legal it is to purchase a gun and high-capacity ammo clips like those used by the Tucson shooter. They were purchased at this gun show from private sellers. It took minutes and a couple hundred bucks in cash to purchase a Glock 9mm and three high-capacity magazines with no background check whatsoever, all perfectly within the law. Careful there, Annie Oakley. I don't have to be careful. I got a gun. Well, you probably want the accessory kit, holster, oh, yeah. bandolier, Maybe. silencer, mm -hmm. loudener, uh -huh. speed cocker. Ooh, I like the sound of that. And this is for shooting down police helicopters. Oh, I don't need anything like that yet.
Just give me my gun. Sorry, the law requires a five-day waiting period. We've got to run a background check. Five days? But I'm mad now. Yeah. I'd kill you if I had my gun. Yeah, well, you don't. You can kiss your right to privacy goodbye. That's because everyone from the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security and the Pentagon, all the way down to your local sheriff and city cop, may be gathering info on you right now as I speak. According to a blockbuster investigative report by the Washington Post, the FBI is building a database with names and certain personal information, such as employment history, of thousands of U.S. citizens and residents whom a local police officer or a fellow citizen believe to be acting suspiciously. In this database are tens of thousands of names of people who are not even accused of any crime. But the feds have files on them because someone ratted them out to something called the Nationwide Suspicious Activity Reporting Initiative. During the Bush administration, when Admiral Poindexter tried to get a TIPS program going after 9-11, there was such an outcry that it had to be shelved. But basically, it's been taken down off the shelf and renamed SAR, Suspicious Activity Reporting. Much of this info is then fed through hundreds of so-called fusion centers, which are groupings of law enforcement personnel around the country, and some of it goes all the way up to the Pentagon. The presumption of innocence and the presumption of privacy are becoming mere relics today, and I'm not being presumptuous about that. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Today's story is called Privacy Rights, Inc. Your right to personal privacy is shrinking, even as corporate America's is growing. And it's written by Dahlia Lithwick. Once upon a time, you had to be a person to assert a right to personal privacy. But more and more, it seems that the demand for personal privacy flows from large, blurry advocacy groups and even larger, blurrier corporations. This trend would be alarming under any circumstances. As it happens, individual privacy rights for real humans seem to be shrinking at the same time corporate privacy rights are expanding. Disclosure of contributors to political campaigns and campaign advertisements used to be an unobjectionable proposition. Now, resisting it is a matter of highest principle. Bruce Joston, Executive Vice President for Government Affairs for the United States Chamber of Commerce, told Jake Tapper, we're under no obligation, as any organization or association in the United States is, to divulge who its members are, who its contributors are. Why? Explain, Justin, we're not going to subject our contributors to harassment, to intimidation, and to threats and to invasions of privacy at their houses and at their places of business, which is what has happened every time there's been disclosure here. Then there's the National Organization for Marriage, an anti-gay marriage group that regularly sues state governments for the right to run election ads, most recently in Rhode Island, without having to abide by the state's disclosure laws. 
Nam also claims that disclosure would lead to harassment of donors. Nam would not be heartened to hear about what happened to Human Life of Washington, which had challenged Washington State's public disclosure law using a similar argument. They lost. But it's not just advocacy groups claiming that they need to protect their members' privacy rights from leagues of nameless, nosy bullies. The Supreme Court has now agreed to hear a case in which AT&T prevailed in its efforts to evade a Freedom of Information Act request because Exemption 7C of FOIA, protecting personal privacy, also now protects the privacy of corporate entities. The Third Circuit Court of Appeals held that FOIA unambiguously indicates that a corporation may have a personal privacy interest within the meaning of Exemption 7C, and noted in a footnote that corporations, like human beings, face public embarrassment, harassment, and stigma. It used to be the case that embarrassment, harassment, and stigma were the best check against corporate wrongdoing, but that was before corporations had feelings. Of course, the Third Circuit's solicitude for the tender feelings of corporations might well eviscerate one of the core purposes of FOIA, but given the Supreme Court's solicitude for the First Amendment rights of corporations in Citizens United, perhaps it's time to recognize that for purposes of privacy rights, corporations are now people too. This growing deference to trembling corporate sensitivity would be merely amusing were it not for the fact that as the idea of corporate privacy and dignity catches hold in the American judiciary, basic notions of privacy and dignity for actual human beings seem to be on the wane. I'm thinking here, just for instance, of an Oklahoma statute that would make available on the Internet identifying information about women who have obtained an abortion. An earlier version of the bill was struck down, but it was hastily enacted again. The purpose of the Oklahoma law is to embarrass, harass, and stigmatize women seeking abortions, the precise argument now being used to bar the disclosure of the names of campaign contributors. How can it possibly be the case that campaign contributions are entitled to a greater measure of privacy and protection from alleged opponents than the personal information of women seeking to make the most difficult and intimate decision of their lives. Or consider the meteoric rise of whole-body imaging, machines that produce virtual strip searches of air travelers. Or the Supreme Court's deeply weird and inconclusive holding in last year's big electronic privacy case, finding that state employees don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the text messages sent on government-issued pagers or the recent Inspector General report that found the FBI had spied on American citizens who engaged in protests, demonstrations, or other activities protected by the First Amendment, or North Carolina's efforts to force Amazon to disclose its customers' purchasing habits. I could go on. Look, nation, you can go ahead and anthropomorphize big corporations all you want, Pretend that AT&T has delicate feelings and that Walmart has a just barely manageable phobia of spiders. But before we extend each and every protection granted in the Bill of Rights to the good folks at ExxonMobil, I have one small suggestion. Might we contemplate what's happened to our own individual privacy in this country in recent years? That the government should have more and more access to our personal information, while we have less and less access to corporate information, defies all logic. It's one thing to ask us to give up personal liberty for greater safety or security. 
It's another matter entirely to slowly take away privacy and dignity from living, breathing humans, while giving more and more of it to faceless interest groups and corporations. Sometimes, political karma can be so right, even when it applies to something so wrong. Thus it was that Barack Obama became the first U.S. president in history to sign legislation into law without actually signing it. While he was traveling in Europe, Congress passed a bill extending the infamous Patriot Act for another four years of secret autocratic invasions of our privacy. The extension passed 15 minutes before midnight on the day the law was to expire. No time to fly it to Obama for his required signature. So, he ordered that his name be affixed by Autopen. How appropriate that this liberty-busting act be signed into law by a soulless machine rather than, as required by the Constitution, by the actual president. Article 1, Section 7 says that for a president to approve a congressional bill, quote, he shall sign it. As you might expect, this mechanical usurpation of the human hand has driven the cult of Obama delegitimizers nuts. A pretty short ride for them. And some are railing against the high crime of this non-signature. But the real crime is not in how the bill was signed, but that a Democrat in the White House would sign it at all. The Patriot Act is an atrocious, fundamentally un-American little house of horrors concocted by John Ashcroft and Dick Cheney. For Obama to put his name to it legitimizes the national surveillance state as a new bipartisan authoritarian normal over America. This is Jim Hightower saying, Obama's team asserts that this mechanical signing is authorized by a 2005 Justice Department memo that, abracadabra, autocratically declares it okay. Great, an act of raw authoritarianism hung around America's neck by the authoritarian Bush regime is now extended on the basis of an authoritarian executive decree by that same regime. Obama has twisted himself into a karmatic pretzel. Slowly twisting in the wind. Twisting, twisting in the wind. She's not your satellite. She doesn't miss you. So turn off your smoke machine and Marshall sky.
I'm Matt Rothschild, the editor of the Progressive Magazine, with my progressive point of view, which you can also grab off our website over at progressive.org. The Obama administration is floating a trial balloon to do away with trials, at least of some of the detainees down in Guantanamo. According to press reports, the president's going to sign an executive order soon that will institutionalize indefinite detention. Such detention violates the Constitution, as well as the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which we're a signatory to. But Obama, a constitutional scholar, doesn't seem too troubled by this. He's likely to propose an extrajudicial system for holding people without charge for as long as he wants to hold them. This concept is medieval. It predates the Magna Carta. It grants to the president kingly powers. And one reason he wants these powers is because he knows it would be difficult to convict some of the detainees after the torture that Bush's interrogators inflicted on them. But by keeping these prisoners indefinitely and without charge, he'd only be victimizing them again. More and more, it looks like these detainees will be stuck in Guantanamo for years to come, both as a result of Obama's impending order and as a result of a move by Congress on Wednesday to limit his ability to transfer any detainee to the U.S. So Guantanamo is still an American gulag, and the president is still both judge and prison guard. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. There's never been a better time to check out Stitcher for your mobile device. When you activate their free app using the promo code BEST, you'll get instant access to thousands of podcasts streamed directly to you without syncing. You'll be entered automatically to win $100, and you'll help support Best of the Left at no cost to you. No reason not to check it out, so head to your preferred app market and download the free Stitcher app just named the best app ever for your iPhone, Android, BlackBerry, or Pre, and be sure to use the promo code BEST during activation. One out of every hundred adults is in prison right now in our country, the land of the free. And in these tough economic times, it's costing states $50 billion a year per capita. We have more people in prison than any country in the world, including China. In 1990, one million Americans were in jail. Now, it's 2.5 million. If prison population continues to grow at this rate in 120 years, we will all be in jail. And and although I don't hold a degree in political science, that sounds like a bad thing. I mean, everyone in jail, everyone in jail, who's going to be left to buy absercisers? No one. The absercisers will just sit there. There'll be empty snuggies scattered around the city like, like, like we were all raptured, but we weren't raptured. We're all in prison being raptured. There are obviously some crimes that deserve to land you in the clink, like murder, rape, sex with a confused, endangered snow leopard, starring in a commercial when you're already a millionaire, or owning a subscription to Us Weekly. There are things that deserve jail, but a lot of people are in jail for genuine poor choices. You know, some guy while drunk and broke and depressed steals a car and then he's sent to jail for 10 years. Meanwhile, J.P. Morgan Chase can steal your car, your house, your plan for the future, and get a bonus. A bonus, a facelift, and soul replacement treatment because the last one has degraded into a tar-like substance. We cage the drunken car thief like an animal, but if you accidentally invade the country of Iraq because you did too much blood 
blow in college and didn't listen during the class on weighing the pros and cons of spotty intelligence, then you not only don't go to jail, you get a, you get a a million dollar book deal in your portrait in the Smithsonian. Sure, your portrait will be the one that the high school kids take cell phone photos next to with their balls hanging out. But still, portrait in the Smithsonian. Meanwhile, a high school dropout working as a stock boy at some pharmacy in a shit town with a hot hangout is a TGI Fridays by the highway because they let you smoke on the patio. Starts bragging to his friends that he could steal a case of Ritalin no problem. And and they pastor him and pastor him until he finally agrees to do it. And of course there's a camera and of course he gets caught and of course he's sentenced to 12 years for theft and drug possession and intent to distribute and an extra year for calling the judge a face mama's boy. And the closest he gets to having his own portrait is when his cellmate carves his bust out of a bar of soap. We have a system where weak, sorrowful idiots go to jail for years, destroying any hope they had of a regular life, while the rich, powerful idiots get rewarded for their poorly executed evil plans with an airport and a boulevard named after them. Now I'm staring at the jailhouse wall Now I'm staring at the jailhouse wall Listening to you shut me out All the feelings I keep all up inside me I got to let them out sometime The things you say and do it to me For what reason I can't find them. So, over the last couple of days we've been talking about outrageous civility civil liberty abuses uh, by the government, uh, and one guy who seemed to be standing up uh, to the government was Rand Paul, and I actually gave him credit for that. On the Patriot Act, he said, hey, some of these provisions appear to be unconstitutional, I agree with him, uh, and we had some disagreements over which provision uh, was most important. Of course, in the end, Rand Paul insisted most on the provision that does not allow us to check on whether terrorists are buying guns. So I disagree with that entirely. But where we're talking about our privacy rights, uh, then uh, Senator Paul and, and I agree. All right. So he seemed to be on the side of civil liberties. All of a sudden, he goes on Sean Hannity's radio program and says something outrageous. Let's listen. Now you set yourself up to be called a bigot because now you want to profile people at the airport. Well, no, you can't win, Rand. I mean, I know, they, they've I got an answer for everything. But here's the thing, Sean, is I'm not for profiling people on the color of their skin or on their religion, but I would take into account where they've been traveling, and perhaps you might have to indirectly take into account whether or not they've been going to radical uh, political speeches by religious leaders, but it wouldn't be that they are Islamic. But if someone is uh, attending speeches from someone who is promoting the violent overthrow of our government, that's really an offense that we should be going after. They should be deported or put in prison. So you should be arrested or deported for going to the wrong kind of speeches? Well, how about speeches you don't agree with? How about you went to go check it out? I went to a Tea Party speech, and I don't agree with those guys at all. If they say something crazy, should I go to jail over it? What if you're a bystander walking by the speech? Do you get arrested? And how about the First Amendment, Rand Paul? Have you ever heard about that? Do you know that legally, even if you give a speech that is violent, it's still not 
illegal, let alone attending a speech where someone else talks about violence. It becomes illegal when you direct it at a certain individual and you say, here's the person that we should commit violence against. Now, the reason why that law is so strident is because we care so much about freedom of speech in this country. That's why we want to give wide leeway to speakers, let alone to listeners. <laughs> that proposal by Rand Paul is more egregious than any other violation I've seen during the Obama or Bush administrations. It makes me wonder if this guy has any idea what he's talking about. And by the way, who's the first guy who would get arrested under this provision? Of course, Rand Paul. He was at a militia event and a blog called Barefoot and Progressive. Uh, Joe Sanka wrote about it there. Very good point. The guys doing the speeches there were holding assault rifles. And Rand Paul attended. He spoke. He certainly listened. And they kept constantly referring to possible violence to overthrow the government. In fact, it doesn't get any more anti-government and insinuating violence than that. So should Rand Paul be imprisoned or deported? I guess that's the question at hand. These guys have no respect for the Constitution. I'm not sure they've even read it or know what it's talking about. And this guy's supposed to be a great civil libertarian on the Republican side. The great words of Sarah Palin. Thanks, but no thanks. That's not the civil libertarian I'm interested in. God, what a disaster these guys are. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Authorities have spent billions of our tax dollars on airport technology and agents supposedly to catch terrorists. But the system amounts to a governmental intrusion that is based on a fundamentally un-American presumption. You are guilty until proven innocent. The founders, who faced the terrorists of their day, would upchuck at our leaders' willingness to so meekly sacrifice the basic right of a presumption of innocence. And how do you prove you are not a fiendish terrorist hell-bent on destroying America? by meekly surrendering the very freedoms that the authorities say actual terrorists want to take from us. First, remove your shoes, a mass bowing down gesture that must cause terrorists to giggle with fervent delight. Now, though, we must also submit either to being groped or to having a radiation scan that lets agents peek beneath your skivvies. The scan, appropriately enough, requires you to raise both hands in the surrender position. The authoritarians and their apologists bark that liberty is a privilege that must be sacrificed for security. As one writer of a letter to the editor put it, I say scan away and grope away, if that makes flying safer. Well, sir, that turns out to be a mighty big if. 
The chief flaw in our present technology-based security scheme is that it doesn't do any good. Hundreds of millions of passengers have been searched, and the system has yet to catch even one terrorist. In fact, the few would-be terrorists who've even attempted an airplane assault were hapless nincompoops who were not deterred by our vast security system, but were brought down by their own incompetence or by alert passengers. This is Jim Hightower saying, "How long will Lady Liberty be forced to bow down to autocratic government rules that aren't working?" The U.S. Justice Department is stepping up its scrutiny of troubled police departments across the country. Last week, the federal government began investigating whether police in Portland, Oregon, use excessive force when dealing with mentally ill people. Civil rights lawyers are looking at how 15 other departments, from Arizona to New Jersey, treat minorities and use force against suspects. NPR's Carrie Johnson has the story. When it comes to federal oversight of local police, there's only one place to start. In our review, we find that uh, the officers uh, struck him with batons between 53 and 56 times. Uh, one officer rendered、uh, six kicks, and one officer one kick. That's the late Los Angeles Police Chief Daryl Gates talking about the 1991 attack on Rodney King. That incident prompted Congress to give the Justice Department the power to investigate patterns of discrimination by local cops. This is not a gotcha exercise. We're not in this. To fix the blame, we're in this to fix the problem. That's Tom Perez. He leads the civil rights unit at the Justice Department. Since the start of the Obama administration, his lawyers have launched investigations all over the country, from Seattle to Newark to New Orleans. I think what we're doing differently in this administration, aside from doing more of it, is I think we're doing it in a much more strategic way, with a focus on systemic reform. Systemic reform. That means asking law enforcement to track how many minorities they stop and frisk, and how many times police use guns or other weapons against suspects. Craig Futterman represents victims of law enforcement abuse. The newer interventions now in New Orleans and Newark are signs of renewed commitment. By the federal government, Department of Justice. There's really no one else that can do the job, Futterman says. Well, it's the age-old question of、um, who polices the police. But people who speak for police officers want the feds to slam on the brakes. Jim Pasco lobbies for the Fraternal Order of Police in Washington D.C. Police officers are on your side and my side. They're not the enemy. And shouldn't be treated as such. All too often, Pasco says, street cops get blamed for the failures of their managers. In a very small minority of cases where officers overstep or misstep, we would agree that something needs to be done. But to just wholesale investigate police departments, trolling in effect for problems, is something that that has a chilling effect 
on rank-and-file officers. Sometimes, the Justice Department says, exposing dirty laundry to the chilly air is exactly what's needed. Again, Perez. We are doing no favors to law-abiding officers. We're doing no favors to communities by sweeping these challenges under the rug. And nowhere is that rug bigger than in the Big Easy, where Justice spent 11 months investigating the New Orleans Police Department. Here's what they found. Widespread racial profiling, unconstitutional searches, and the failure to investigate rape and domestic violence. At a news conference in March, Perez blamed the paid detail system, a sort of sanctioned moonlighting by police officers, for much of the department's trouble. That detail system, in the opinion of one observer of the department, is the aorta of corruption in that department. Over the past few weeks, several officers in New Orleans have been put on leave in a widening scandal over those arrangements. Justice Department officials say they expect to reach a settlement agreement with the city by the end of the year. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. It's The Onion Radio News. The FBI says six dead are not really a mass murder. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Addressing reporters about the ritual slaying of six cheerleaders at a Frankfort, Kentucky high school, FBI Director Robert Mueller clarified today that the body count does not seem high enough to qualify as mass murder. I don't know if there's an official minimum, but I always imagined mass was more like 15 or 20. At Charles Whitman, for example, there was a mass murderer. Mueller added that in spite of their modest scale, the killings were, quote, still pretty bad. Doyle Redland for the Onion. At least there's pretty lights, though there's little variation. It nullifies the night from overkill. Day after day it reappears. Night after night my heartbeat shows the fear. This week, Congress reauthorized the Patriot Act without much debate, but with the full-throated support of the Obama administration. Our hope is that these provisions will be reauthorized for as long as we possibly can. If they were done on a permanent basis, that is not something that we would object to. That was Attorney General Eric Holder, apparently not as concerned as privacy advocates were about the act's potential impact on civil liberties nor were most legislators. When Kentucky Senator Rand Paul objected to federal searches of gun records, Democratic Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid accused Paul of being soft on terror. Meanwhile, Oregon Senator Ron Wyden suggested that the government is secretly interpreting the act even more broadly than generally assumed. 
Washingtonian Magazine reporter Shane Harris is the author of The Watchers, The Rise of America's Surveillance State. He summarizes the three most controversial provisions of the act. One that allows them to place multiple wiretaps when they're tracking a single individual. It's called the roving wiretap. Another is something called the business records provision, which allows them to obtain all kinds of different records. It could be hotel records, rental car, credit card receipts, etc. And a third is something called the lone wolf provision, which allows the government to start surveillance on someone even if they can't show that he's connected to a terrorist organization or is a foreign agent or a spy. What is the political climate that permits, you know, what appears to be an incursion into the Bill of Rights to occur with so little public debate. When these reauthorization debates come up, there is this line that gets drawn in the sand, and members have to choose between being on the side of law enforcement and intelligence agencies and giving them the tools they need to catch terrorists and bad guys or being on the other side. In fact, when Senator Rand Paul, the Republican from Kentucky, a libertarian, tried to raise issues concerning the reauthorization, Senator Harry Reid, the majority leader in the Senate, denounced him essentially as soft on terror. That's right. And he said that if Senator Paul did not stop his efforts to try and block passage of the reauthorization, that he was giving al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups an opportunity to start plotting against the United States, which is quite an exaggeration considering any of the surveillance going on right now of terrorist organizations would continue even if the Patriot Act expired. Law enforcement and intelligence agencies wouldn't be able to get new authorizations until the law was renewed. But to sort of cast it in these terms, the way that Senator Reid did really gives you a sense of how really kind of binary this debate becomes when it's taken up at the 11th hour like this, which it so frequently is. And on the subject of 11th hours, uh, this week, just before Congress took up the issue, there was a bombshell from Senator Ron Wyden, who revealed that there could be secrecy within the secrecy embedded in this act. I believe there are two Patriot Acts in America. The first is the text of the law itself, and the second is the government's secret interpretation of what they believe the law means. It turns out that according to Senator Wyden and Senator Udall, that there is some kind of very broad interpretation of the Patriot Act that the government is making and that is essentially keeping to itself. And he couldn't talk about this in great detail without violating his confidentiality oath, he said. But what he's implying is that there is something within the business records provision, one of these provisions that was up for reauthorization, and that generally lets the FBI collect all kinds of records, that is being very broadly interpreted to, in the senator's view, allow the FBI to get more information than the law actually allows it to get. And what's very important here is he's not saying that he wants the government to come out and say, what are you collecting? What he wants some public light on is the legal rationale for why it is they're interpreting the provision this way. It raises the question of whether or not there is a secret Patriot Act within the Patriot Act. If Senator Wyden is right, this is happening under the Barack Obama administration, which campaigned against this kind of overreach. Is it that governments, once they have police powers, simply do not want to surrender them? 
I think that's right. They tend to increase over time, and no administration wants to get rid of them. This administration, particularly, which is deeply committed to breaking up terrorist groups, to attacking al-Qaeda, this is the president that ordered you know, the killing of Osama bin Laden, after all, they look at these tools in the Patriot Act and others as absolutely essential to doing that. When, however, a society begins to trade some of its basic freedoms for security, isn't it time to uh, have what the president calls an adult conversation? Absolutely. And I think what's remarkable about this late revelation with the Patriot Act, if it's in fact true that, that the administration is interpreting it in secret behind closed doors, that would be extraordinary probably for any administration. I think it will now really fall, frankly, to journalists and to some other members of Congress to find out what exactly this interpretation is and if the senators are uh, overly concerned about it. But right now, I would probably err on the side of being extremely skeptical of what the administration is doing. All right, Shane. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks. Shane Harris is a reporter for The Washingtonian and author of The Watchers, the rise of America's surveillance state. Walk down to the corner store just before nightfall in my bare feet. Black tarry asphalt, soft and hot. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal, it will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. St. Joseph's baby aspirin. I don't agree with a lot of what Rand Paul stands for, but he's absolutely right to be objecting to the extension of some of the most noxious clauses of the USA Patriot Act. One of those allows roving wiretaps. Another lets the FBI essentially write its own subpoenas and slap them on any business in the country demanding all their records. This includes libraries and bookstores, which have to cough up the names of their customers and the books they're checking out or buying. These provisions expire this week and on Wednesday on the Senate floor. Majority Leader Harry Reid went after Rand Paul in the most outrageous manner. Sounding like Dick Cheney himself, Reid said that if these provisions aren't extended, there will be dire consequences and terrorists will be able to plot against our country undetected. Rand Paul called Reed's charges scurrilous, which they were. He said he just wanted to debate the constitutionality of the Patriot Act, adding, we threw out the Constitution with the Patriot Act. In trying to block the extension of these provisions, Rand Paul was taking the exact same position as the ACLU and former Senator Russ Feingold and current Judiciary Chair Patrick Leahy. Those folks aren't trying to help terrorists plot against America undetected, and neither's Rand Paul. Harry Reid, enough of the fear-mongering already. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
Patriot Act was up for renewal for four years, and it passed very easily. A lot of Democrats voted for it. I know during the Bush years, the Patriot Act was unacceptable to a lot of Democrats. All of a sudden, under a Democratic president, it was incredibly acceptable. In fact, uh, here's a Democrat uh, from uh, 2008. I believe this guy's name is Barack Obama. Here's what he said. Uh, there is no reason we cannot fight terrorism while maintaining our civil liberties. As president, Barack Obama would revisit the Patriot Act to ensure that there is real and robust oversight of tools like national security letters, sneak and peek searches, and the use of material witness provision. That was in a position paper that he put uh, out in 2008, his campaign did. Uh, was there a serious look at national security letters, sneak and peek searches, etc.? Nope. No revisions. Exactly the same. That same administration, well, or it, at the time it was a campaign, now it's an administration, put out this uh, quote at the end of last week. Senior administration official, quote, failure to pass this legislation with sufficient time for the president to sign it before it expires at midnight on Thursday poses a significant risk to the U.S. national security. The bottom line is that if these provisions are allowed to lapse, even temporarily, the nation will be less safe. Sounds just like President George W. Bush. So, Democrats, of course, go along with uh, their president, and they sign into law for four years the same exact problems that we had before. By the way, what were those problems? There are roving wiretaps. I'll give you three of the main ones. Uh, lone wolf investigations and access to business records. Now, what does that mean? What it says is, hey, you know what? I don't need probable cause anymore. I don't need a warrant. There's a national security issue at hand here. So I'm going to target some folks, and we're going to do roving wiretaps of them, right? So if they go to their phone, I'm going to check that. If they go to their cell phone, I'm going to get that. If they go to their phone at work, I'm going to get that. If they email from home or work, I'm going to get that. I'm going to get it all, right? Now, in the past, you would need a specific warrant for a specific phone or computer, etc. Now, I could sign on for a roving wiretap as long as you get a warrant and say, hey, look, we think this guy is dangerous. Here's our evidence why. You show a judge, and judge goes, okay, makes sense. Go collect information on him. That's how the system is supposed to work. Now, you don't need a warrant. Well, the government just decided you were dangerous, so they put a roving wiretap on you and get every single email, phone call you ever made. Okay? The business records provision, by the way, the lone wolf provision means, uh, you know what? We don't really have anything connecting him to any other terrorist, but we think he's dangerous. Again, if you had probable cause and you showed just a tiny little bit of evidence saying, hey, this is why we're concerned about that guy, you go get a warrant. It's the easiest thing in the world. The FISA court almost always gives you the warrant, right? But they don't want to do that because they want to wiretap all of us, right? They want to have the, at least the ability to wiretap all of us. And in fact, based on other uh, previous reporting, they do. It's all sitting in records. The question is, do they go out and access it whenever they want on particular individuals? The guy who created that program uh, at the National Security Agency then retired and said, apologize to the country, and said, I'm so sorry. This is not how it was intended. It was not supposed to be used against Americans. And now is the NSA using it against Americans? Absolutely. Okay. And then the business records is, well, I'm not satisfied just getting all the information that you have out in the public that I can gather in some way. Now, it's not your phone calls and your emails aren't supposed to be public, but they can grab it, right, by using AT&T and some of the other, you know, telecoms to give them the information. So the business records is they go to your company or they go to your doctor and go, I wrote up a letter. It's called a national security letter. I didn't get a judge for anything on it or anybody to look at it, and I want all of his records. And they have to give them to him. 
basically that means the Fourth Amendment no longer exists. You, there is no, uh, you know, protection against unreasonable searches and seizures. It's gone. Remember, Barack Obama was a constitutional law professor. What a joke! And what did he do? No protections against any of this. They just repassed the Patriot Act for four long years. All right, now if you think that's bad, Ron Wyden, senator from Oregon, says, you don't know the half. There is a provision, apparently, that the federal government is using that keeps what they're really doing with the Patriot Act secret from Congress and the public. Now, Wyden says, wait a minute, I'm a senator. you telling me the executive branch is interpreting this law in a way that we don't even know? And they say they have the right to do it just because they're the executive branch? He said, that's outrageous. And we know they're doing it. Because Senator Wyden says they're doing it, we just don't know what it is. Now, the stuff we already know that's public record is outrageous. So, my God, what is a secret program? And what the hell are they doing with that program? And where did they get authorization from it? They got authorization on the Patriot Act. That was outrageous. I just told you about it. But they don't have authorization for the secret application of the Patriot Act. Look, this isn't a hypothesis. You've got a United States senator saying this. And he's waving red flags going, watch out, watch out. They're using this in a way that's totally unauthorized. We elected a guy for change? What was the change? That we get spied on more? <laughs> that our civil liberties get crushed more? Where the hell's the change? You think that's bad, it gets worse. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security is conducting tests on a program called Future Attribute Screening Technology, FAST for short. Raw stories reporting this. I, I'm Nature Magazine reported, I'm shocked by it. I almost literally cannot believe it. It is a program that is supposed to judge our intent for future crimes. That's it. <laughs> I mean, we're officially in science fiction. I mean, this is almost beyond Orwell. It's a Tom Cruise movie. They are trying to judge, quote, your malintent. <laughs> now, comically, Department of Homeland Security claims that they know it works 70% of the time. Where do they get that information? What, they cost 70% of the terrorists? When? When did you catch a terrorist using this program? And wh what's the three terrorists you missed out of ten? What a joke. What experiments did you run that you get that number? T absurd. So now they say, they have, don't worry, in, back in 2008, they did a privacy impact assessment. And uh, the technology uh, is supposed to measure people who intend to cause harm. They are looking for... Uh, physiological properties such as heart rate, eye movement, which can be used to infer a person's current mindset. This is what our government is doing? We've lost, man. This, is, this isn't the democracy. This isn't the United States of America. We, because we are apparently, theoretically, in a panic over terrorism, what they're going to do from their bunker in Abbottabad, we've given away our rights. We've turned this into a police state. You think that's bad? It continues to get worse and worse. There's a new article in Wall Street Journal today saying that the United States government reserves the right to take military action against the cyber attack. Here is one unnamed military official according to the Wall Street Journal. Quote, if you shut down our power grid, maybe we will put a missile down one of your smokestacks. Now you think, okay, look. I think that those cyber attacks can cause tremendous harm, right? And I get, of course, that the Pentagon is concerned about it, not just for 
uh, regular business and how much money it's going to cost, but what it can do in terms of national security, etc. I understand all that. And I think people take cyber attacks way too lightly, and I think they do cost millions upon millions of dollars. But we don't get to drop a bomb on their head. Now, is it going to get stretched to beyond the military? Oh, of course it's already stretched. They say, well, Lockheed Martin, a private corporation, does a lot of defense work. So if you hack into Lockheed Martin, well, then we could bomb you as well. You think they're not going to stretch that to other corporations? You think they're going to ask questions outside the country? Oh, who did we, you know, in the words of this guy, uh, put a missile down uh, their smokestack? This is beyond... You think that it's going to be just the terrorists who are cyber-attacking us? Come on, man, don't tell me you're that foolish and naive. It starts that way, and then where does it go? Well, there was a cyber-attack from WikiLeaks who happened to get sensitive national security information, and since they got that information and could be giving it to an enemy of the state or releasing it to the public where enemies of the state would see it, well, we're going to call that a cyber attack and order up a couple of drones. We have slipped into a disastrous police state, and nobody looks like they're getting out in front of this at all to stop it. Where are the Democrats? Ha! Missing in action. What action? They're nowhere to be found. Well, the genius of this whole military-industrial complex was to put President Obama in charge so the Democrats would shut up. They said, what? It's a Democratic president. The guy who we claimed had the most liberal record in the Senate when he was running for president, he's the one that says we should do all of this. We should judge your malintent and do uh, actual military against cyber uh, attacks. And, and, you know, and that we should take away your rights to privacy and do warrantless searches on you. Well, you can't disagree with Democratic President Obama, can you? And of course the Republicans love it, and here we are. Disaster on top of disaster. Hi, Jay. This is Jeff in New York. Just want to tell you how useful I find the YouTube links you provide on your blog to the best of the left segments. I have a blog, theliberalcurmudgeon.com. When I hear a best of the left segment that I want to feature, I'm able to go to your blog, easily get the link, and embed the video in my blog. I recently used a video of a chank of the Young Turks talking about income inequality. And it's good that I don't have to search around the net to find a, a good link. Of course, I have a link to the best of the left on the liberal curmudgeon. So thanks for making it much easier to share progressive perspectives. Love your show. Bye. Hey Jay, this is Mark Shockley from Salisbury, Maryland. Just became a monthly member. Just to let you know, I appreciate your show and uh, good hearing from you uh, several times a month. Um, everything that you're bringing up on the show, the topics, is so much that we need to hear. And um, to a lot of the people out there, we need to use our voice and make our choices because right now Washington is trying to make them for us. So just to let you know, I appreciate your show and um, thank all the volunteers and all the people who make it possible so we can get these podcasts and get them out to other people and share them with the rest of our community. 
Well, anyway, I'm going to keep this short. You have a good day, and thanks again, Jay. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Wendy from Olympia. I recently listened to Lee Camp's Is Wall Street Set Up to Reward Evil as the opening segment for the No War But Class War edition. I love the show except for Lee's use of the terms cunt and douchebag to describe Wall Street shenanigans. Camp's not the only outspoken lefty that hurls these insults and terms around. John Stewart also loves the term douchebag. My rant isn't specifically about camp, but I offer the plea to all you progressives working toward a better world. Yes, I know we sometimes get frustrated and downright pissed off at all the things that are going on in our world, but why do you have to piss off half the people, the female component of progressives, by using derogatory terms for female genitalia to describe your dissatisfaction or disillusionment for mostly male-generated actions? I'm pretty sure the people Camp were describing on Wall Street were mostly men. He could have used gender-appropriate terms like prick or dickhead. However, in the name of gender equality, how about considering gender-neutral terms like shithead or asshole if you actually feel the need to hurl an insult? I know you didn't say these terms, Jay, but I just get tired of the hate and name-calling, especially about women. While I expect those on the right to have no clue about their treatment of women, though I don't ever expect to hear them say the words cunt or douchebag. I expect progressives to be more enlightened. I hope I have offered some words to your male contributors to be more intentional about their selection of words. I don't expect to never be pissed off. I just hope it's from those on the right and not the left. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. Now, a couple of shows back, I was talking about a couple of clips that I found to be really interesting when juxtaposed against each other uh, back-to-back, and I want to dive a little bit deeper into that today. So indulge me for a moment and uh, have a listen to these two clips. These are just segments of the clips I was referring to. Uh, back to back. The first is uh, taken from the Rachel Maddow show and she was playing clips from Rush Limbaugh and the second is from comedian Lee Camp. There just has to be a backlash against the drive-by media. Mikhail Gorbachev, Lenin, Stalin never got this kind of coverage from their media and they owned it and they dictated to it. The story is the drive-by media turning on its favorite maverick, trying to take him out. I'll tell you, it's one thing to deal with the liberalism of the drive-bys, but their stupidity is what's really frustrating. The point is, the drive-bys, they don't just sit around and report. They're not just biased, and they're not just liberals. They are trying to influence the outcome of events in in ways, of course, in which they choose. The drive-by media has cast aside any any pretense at objectivity. They have taken up with the Democrat Party and they are both going to go down. Go down. The drive-by media is not just reporting the story. The drive-by media is influencing events. Thank God Almighty you've made your way to the safety of this show. We're not the drive-by media. The message implicitly is that Rush Limbaugh is speaking to you, for you. Rush Limbaugh understands the world. Rush Limbaugh understands you. You may think there's no one left to trust in all the world. You certainly can't trust anybody else in the media. But you can trust Rush Limbaugh because he's on to him. 
And this is the second clip from Lee Camp picking up right after he talked about uh, basically destroying your television so you wouldn't make the mistake of watching uh, mainstream media. Get your news elsewhere from now on. Get it from Democracy Now! or TheRealNews.com or Truthout.org or Alternet. You're even better off getting it from a novel like 1984 or Catch-22. Hell, get it from the schizophrenic who lives under your stairs and figures out the weather by reading the chakra of his steamed okra. You can even get your news from a Glenn Beck book. Just read it backwards and upside down while inhaling varnish fumes. So let me say right off the bat that I'm not trying to equate these two statements whatsoever. I, you know, I think that would be a false equivalent. So that's definitely not what I'm doing. I do think they sound very similar though. You know, these are uh, two people coming from completely different perspectives, coming at the same topic, uh, you know, for completely different reasons, but sounding very similar to each other. Uh, so I, I really just found it interesting and uh, more than anything would love to hear what you guys have to say about it. Just your reactions, thoughts, uh, explanations. So anything you have to say about that, again, the number for the voicemail line is 206-202-3410. So now before I go, I just want to thank the people who make the show possible, volunteers Mike, Colette, Todd, Joe, Laura, Lauren, and Tim, and a couple of members, Stephen H. signed up uh, really recently, just on May 23rd, but signed up for a socialist membership and paying for a full year in advance. So huge thanks to Stephen for that and to Joseph R., who signed up for a leftist monthly membership uh, way back on November 21st and has stuck with the show since then. So uh, that is also greatly appreciated. So Stephen and Joseph and all the members and donors who keep the show going, I couldn't do it without you guys. For details on, on membership or, or just to make a simple donation, check out bestoftheleft.com and there's a, a big membership tab where you can find details or, you know, donation button just on the sidebar uh, works just as well. Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Uh, I've just launched a new volunteer program. If you're interested in uh, helping support progressive media in general, drop me a line at j at bestoftheleft.com, and I'll send you more details about that. It's a very exciting program. I think uh, if you have the time and inclination whatsoever, you should definitely get in on that. Individually, you can donate your Twitter account to us, donateyouraccount.com slash bestoftheleft, or you can just stay tuned into the show and help spread the word online by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter themselves. For details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all those details are always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. I think I understand why people might be upset with Citizen Radio. Me personally, I love Citizen Radio. It's a great show. 
And um, I think the reason people get upset with them is because Citizen Radio actually call you out. They actually expect things of their listeners. And there are a lot of great shows out there like Rachel Maddow, Young Turks, um, you know, all these great liberal shows. But most of those shows, they just give you the news and they tell you things you didn't know. But at the end of the day, you know, you just sit there, you watch the show, you might get upset or something, but they don't actually tell you what to do. But Citizen Radio, they actually tell you the news that you don't know about. And then they actually call you out. They actually tell you, you know, you know, if you eat meat, you're wrong. You should be a, a vegan. You know, they actually tell you that, you know, if you support Obama and doing wars that are illegal, you know, you're wrong. They just, they call people out. And I noticed that a lot of the people who were against them, they didn't have any actual facts. They were just saying, you know, they were just mad at Citizen Radio, but they didn't actually have statistics to back it up. And I think that's why, because they kind of get unsettled by the fact that they're actually being called out for being, um, for being liberals who are liberal, but they don't actually um, work towards liberal values. So, you know, I like Citizen Radio. I'm glad they do what they do. We need people like them out there. So keep up the good work. I look forward to more best of the left. Hi, Jay. This is Eric from uh, York, Pennsylvania again. Um, I just heard uh, Jamie's comments on uh, from Citizen Radio. And uh, first off, I do not want to be in the category of people who do not like Citizen Radio. In fact, actually, I agree with them most of the time. Um, I think they're funny. I don't mind if they curse sometimes. Um, I- I'm a fan of Citizen Radio. Um, uh, because of time constraints, I don't listen to the podcast that often, but um, I do I do like them, so I want to say that. Secondly, Jamie was totally correct in saying that I did not back up my statements about about uh, his show, and uh, he's totally right to say that, and uh, I want to say that, hey, you know, it's one thing to put out an argument, uh, but she wanted to back it up, and I didn't, and he's right to point that out, so uh, I want to say uh, he used to do a great job of pointing that out. Um, I do want to say that this. Um, the reason I, I pulled abortion out and p- Planned Parenthood out about the fact that they weren't consistent, Citizen Radio isn't consistent about that, I think a lot of the liberals are consi- aren't are not consistent about uh, those two issues. Um, uh, you can be you can be pro-choice, but most liberals are also against death penalty, and, and you know because and they're against whores because you know there's the killing of life. Well. Anybody who's a parent knows that, uh, you know, when a woman is pregnant and chooses to terminate her pregnancy, she's killing in life. And I, I don't know, you know, there are lots of instances and reasons for that. And, you know, I'm a man. I, I don't get to make that decision. But that is a nuanced view. And the, the, um, the point of the show that I was responding to was about consistency. He was talking about being consistent in your arguments when it came to Barack Obama. And I thought, yeah, he was smuggy smug there. And the other host was smuggy smug there, you know, about being consistent. And, you know, that is not a consistent view. A view on abortion is not consistent, not consistent with life. And, and, you know, um, again, I share that position. Uh, I think Citizen Radio shares that position. But that's a nuanced position that that I have and that I think that Citizen Radio has. Also, um, about Planned Parenthood, uh, the reason that I brought that up was because, you know, uh, we talked about the money going into the 2010 election campaign and the Chamber of Commerce was 
fungible or not fungible, but it's fungible for the Chamber of Commerce, but not fungible for uh, Planned Parenthood. And you, know, you can parse that either way, uh, but it's not a consistent argument to have. So um, th- th- my whole point was about them being consistent and that one segment uh, that, that, that you played. So um, um, again, I'm a big fan of yours and a big fan of Citizen Radio, and uh, I hope I can at least back up what I was saying, because I certainly did not the first time. So thanks again for your time. Bye.